Merry Christmas once again. Glad y'all have joined us. Um, you know what? When we st- when the service first started, there were like six people in the room. <laughs> yeah, the cold slowed you down today. <laughs> cold slowed you down. That's okay. It slowed me down too. I was actually a little late getting here this morning. First time I think I'm first time I think I've ever been late getting here on a Sunday morning. But it's hard when it's down in the twenties. You know, anybody anybody who may be watching this online or listening on the podcast from from the Great White North, like when it gets down in the twenties here, that's bad. Like that's that's freezing cold, and uh, maybe the, maybe the Christmas lights help to warm us up a little bit. You know, we got the in the intro video there. We got the lights flickering on and off, and and um, you know you drive around during Christmas, and there's just there's lights everywhere, right? Um, how many of you? I'm curious. How many of you go crazy with Christmas lights? Any of you go crazy? Only only if you. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I see. Point. You're getting pointed at. You won't admit it, right? Uh, which I understand because it's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. And um, Jess, you know, we, we have absolutely, we have minimal Christmas decorations at our house. I get uh, jokingly called a little bit of a Scrooge around our place. Um, I'm not. I love Christmas. It's just all the it's all the stuff that leads up to it that, that bothers me. Drives me crazy when we start doing it before Thanksgiving. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, we got to give Thanksgiving its due, the holiday of eating. And, um, but there's lights. I love driving by other people's houses and seeing all the lights out, you know, just not at my house. And, um, you know, I've been asked, why, why don't you put up some lights? I mean, you, I've got bushes out front. I could put one of those, you know, like kind of blanket things, you know, those lights that are all strung together and just toss that out there. Or I have some posts, you know, on the porch around my front door. Why don't I just wrap some lights up around that and just get a little festive, a little bit in the Christmas spirit? And my answer is safety. Okay? Christmas lights are dangerous. I don't know if you realize this. You consider this a public service announcement from your pastor, but um, Christmas lights are insanely dangerous. You would be shocked at the number of injuries and even deaths that occur every year as a result of Christmas lights. So I do them in the Christmas tree, and that's it. Nowhere else. So listen to these statistics. This is going to blow you away. In the United States of America, every single year, there are 150 house fires that are blamed by Christmas lights. 150. Now, there's roughly 150 million households in the United States, which means your chances of your house catching on fire as a result of your Christmas lights is one in a million. Now, are those chances you want to take? <laughs> Not me. That's dangerous. That's super dangerous. Uh, uh, Let's take, okay, let's go to the extreme, okay, not just house fires, deaths. Do you know that every single year in America, Christmas lights are to blame for eight deaths? Eight. I know. The United States of America now has a population of 324 million. I don't know if you know that. That means your chances, your chances of of dying as a result of your Christmas lights is two millionths of a percent. Are those chances you want to take? Not me. That's why my house has absolutely no Christmas lights on the outside of it. I'm sticking by, I'm sticking by the safety route, all right? Uh, really, it's because I'm lazy. And it's cold out there. And I don't want to go out there in the cold and do work. So we'll just stick with the lights in the tree for now. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, every year, I got to get my lights out. You guys get your lights out um, of the box? And I've learned something. It doesn't matter how carefully I wrap the lights the year before. I, I don't know if you're aware of this. There is a gnome of Christmas lights. Did you know that? 
Some of you, some of you might call him a, a demon, but I, you know, I'm not going to go quite that far. It's a gnome of Christmas lights, and he lives in your attic or your basement or wherever it is that you keep your lights. And all year long, it's just a, it's a joy for him. He sits in that box where your lights are, and he just takes them and winds them one over the other, right? And tangles them up, and you can put them in as carefully as you want. When you get them out at the end of the year, they are going to be tangled beyond repair. And he, you know what he's going to do? He's going to find that one light bulb. He's going to find one light bulb, and he's going to swap out the good light bulb for the bad light bulb. And then once you get them out and you get them all untangled, you're going to plug them in. And guess what? Half the lights aren't going to work. And then you're going to have to go through and you're going to have to test each and every light bulb to find the one that doesn't work so that the whole thing works again. And if he's really devious, this is how you know if you've got a really bad light, Christmas light gnome, uh, is if he changes two. Because if you have two bad bulbs on a string like that, you can't ever find it. There's no way. The potentials go way, way up. It's just impossible at that point. And so it's rough. So I, I devised a plan last year. I said, I'm going to come up with a foolproof plan to keep the gnome of Christmas lights from tangling up my lights. And so I created this. This is going to shock you. This is going to be amazing. I created this. <laughs> okay, this, this is what I use to keep my Christmas lights untangled. And so, I see, I fashioned a handle on the bottom. It's just three pieces of PVC pipe, all right, that are duct taped together. All right, and then a Razor scooter box. I felt like that was appropriate. The kids got a Razor scooter for Christmas last year. And then um, you've got a little elbow on the end here. And so what I do, I'm trying to do this with hands. I'm going to do it like this, all right, is I put some holes in here. And so I put one end of the, of the string of lights in there and another end in there, another end in there, another end. This, is gonna, this can hold, this is a five-string capacity. You can make it at whatever, whatever string capacity you want to make it at. It's totally up to you. Um, and you can use whatever handle materials. But then I put it in, I lay them out in a line, and then I just spin it. All right? And it wraps them all up. Yeah, it, when, it's, when it's wrapped around a box like this, good luck, gnome. Good luck. Ain't going to happen. And then what happened is, is uh, this year when we got this out, I just had Jess hold on to the handles. I grabbed the ends of the light, and I just... And it just unraveled like that. It was amazing. <laughs> I still had bad bulbs, but what are you going to do about that? <laughs> you know, but uh, I just thought I would give you that little hack so that maybe, maybe this year you can wind up your lights with something as fancy as that and uh, not struggle so much next year. You know, as, as fun as Christmas is, there are a few irritations to it, are there not? <laughs> there are a few things about Christmas that are a little bit difficult, that are a little bit dark. And as much as we want Christmas to be a season of light and we want Christmas to be a season of joy, sometimes it isn't. And so what I'm hoping is that through this Christmas season and what we talk about here at Carolina Family Church, maybe we can bring a little more light into the dark for the holidays for you this year. And particularly today, I want to talk about the difficulty that's created by uh, people <laughs> at Christmas, the people that we have to spend time with, because that can be the hardest thing, right? Um, Christmas is a little bit like uh, a big family photo. You ever done one of those, like with the whole extended family? And they take everybody in the family, and sometimes people that you don't see at any time during the year except maybe at Christmas and, and Thanksgiving or whatever, and get you in a photo together. And what happens? Everybody, everybody gets in, and everybody gets to a you know, comfortable space, or I've got my personal space, and everybody's got their personal space, and the photographer says what? 
Everybody move in. Come in from the outside. Get in a little tighter. Get a little closer. Whether it's a pro or it's Aunt Mabel, it doesn't matter. They're like, get in a little bit closer. Pack it in. And then you start kind of cramming in, you know, a little closer, a little closer, a little closer until everybody's in the shot. And you're starting to get super uncomfortable because you love these people. But, you know, like you love your cousin, but you're not from that part of Kentucky. You know what I mean? Like it's a little, it's a little too close for comfort. Yeah, that's what Christmas is like because we through the Christmas season, are expected to spend time with people that we maybe don't spend time with the rest of the year, and it can be a little uncomfortable because we don't get along, because we don't parent the same way, because we don't have the same, uh, you know, beliefs in life or the same standards of morals, or we, um, we've argued, like maybe this is the first Christmas that you have with uh, your brothers and sisters since your parents passed away or your last parent passed away, and not only do you have to deal with this Christmas not having your parent with you, but you also argued with your brother and sister or your, your siblings about over the inheritance and who was going to get what, and it can get... Family can get so messy, right? It's, it's sad how people express their, their grief. And so sometimes grief is expressed by greed after something like that happens. Or maybe, maybe you're having a hard time because this season uh, somebody's not there who has always been there. Or maybe, um, maybe you've had a fight. Or maybe you have to, at Christmas, maybe it's particularly hard for you because you are forced at Christmas to spend time with someone who has, um, who has taken advantage of you or who has abused you. And you gotta, you're, you're supposed to come, you're supposed, you're supposed to be in the same room as them at Christmas. Uh, when all of that has happened, you have to act like everything's okay when you know it's not. And so there's all kinds of issues that come with family, and it's just gets, uh, it just gets bigger when Christmas comes around. Anybody deal with that kind of thing? You feel that? Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. So, uh, wait, not my family, um, just in case they're listening to this or watching this. Not my family, but other families I know deal with this kind of thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to bring a little light to the darkness of our relationships at Christmas. And um, to do that, we're going to go to the book of John. So if you have your Bible, turn to the book of John. And, and now you may not be familiar with the Bible. And if you've never been to church before, if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, I'm really, really glad that you're here. And I hope you learned something about it today. And I believe what we talk about today can be helpful for you, whether you believe in Jesus or not. But um, we're going to go to the book of John. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's broken down into two parts. You have um, the Old Testament, which is the Old Covenant or the Old Deal, and the New Testament or the New Covenant or the New Deal. This is how God relates to us now. And the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. These are accounts of Jesus' life from four different people. And because these accounts come from four different people, they come from four different perspectives and with four different purposes as well. So like the first one, Matthew, Matthew is really concerned, particularly when it comes to the birth of Jesus, with Jesus' lineage, because he's, he's talking to people who understand about the Old Testament, about the Messiah that God promised and all this. So he starts off telling the Christmas story by talking about um, Jesus' line, about his, uh, his heritage, that he comes from the King David. Um, Mark doesn't talk about the, the birth of Jesus at all. He doesn't reference it even a little bit. He starts with the baptism of Jesus. He actually starts with Jesus' ministry. And then the book of Luke, Luke gives an, a detailed historical account of the birth of Jesus. This is where we read about the wise men and all that kind of stuff. Typically, when we read the Christmas story, we read it from Luke because Luke gives the most detail. So, um, you know, if you open your Bible, if your family does this, my wife's family does this every Christmas, somebody opens the Bible, reads the Christmas story, always comes from Luke. 
Now, Luke, uh, throughout his entire gospel, gives a ton of detail because he was writing an accurate historical account of Jesus' life. Um, and this is kind of a little side note, but it always interests me. I heard this argument this week. I was, I was watching in on two people who were having a debate over whether Jesus really lived or not, which I think is a funny debate. It's a silly debate because he did. But, um, but one of the arguments the person made was there's no historical document, there's no historical reference to Jesus anywhere in you know, his, his, his history. I'm like, What? Yes, there is. The book of Luke is a historical account of Jesus' life. But it's just because it was included in the Bible that people discount it. But it's, it's as much an accurate historical document as anything else that you're going to read from the time period. Um, he, in fact, he starts off the Gospel of Luke by saying, hey, I'm putting together this account of Jesus' life for a guy named Theophilus so that he will have an accurate record of what happened. So Luke was an investigative journalist who went and got people eyewitness accounts and documented things, and he put together the book of Luke and then the book of Acts. So it's what it's designed to be. So he writes for that purpose. And the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. I I know we don't use the word synoptic, but think of the word synonymous. The first three gospels are very similar to each other. They record similar events, and they're in similar styles. And um, They agree with each other across the board. And then you have the fourth gospel, which is not one of those three, by a guy named John. And John's gospel is just different than the other three. It's written differently. It has a different purpose than the other three. And it agrees with the other three in all ways, so there's no disagreement. But John writes from a different perspective. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke write from the perspective of a follower of Jesus... John writes from the perspective of a friend of Jesus. So when you read the Gospel of John, and if you've never read the Bible before, I would encourage you to start right here in the book of John. John was Jesus' best friend, and so he is concerned with showing people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And one of the cool things about the book of John, as you read through it, is that John gives a ton of one-on-one personal interactions with people. And John, the best friend of Jesus, decides to start his gospel not by talking about what happened when Jesus came to earth, but why Jesus came to earth. It's one of my favorite passages to read at Christmas. So if you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 1, verse 1. We're, gonna, we're just going to read the first 14 verses of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. And when he says the word, he's talking about Jesus, okay? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And you notice where where, uh, Matthew and where Luke start with Jesus being born, John starts way before that. John goes all the way back to the beginning, and he says, Jesus always has been. He's eternal, just like the Father, just like the Spirit. It says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about who we call John the Baptist, his Jesus' cousin. All right. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness 
about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. There's your, there's your nativity story from the book of John. The light was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John doesn't start with how Jesus was born. He doesn't start with the details of Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and the manger and no room in the inn and all of that. John starts with why Jesus was born. And if we really want to understand how we walk through this season and celebrate it the right way, if we really want to understand how we relate to the people in our life that we have to spend time with uh, over the Christmas season, we need to start by understanding why Jesus was born. And to understand that more deeply, we're going to go to one of these individual one-on-one conversations that Jesus has that John records. It's in John chapter 3. So jump forward a a couple pages uh, a couple couple clicks on your phone or your mobile device to John chapter 3. And um, we're going to see Jesus talking to a man um, in, the, in the middle of the night, okay? He's a Pharisee, so he's a religious leader. He's an expert in the Old Testament law. And he and the other Pharisees are watching Jesus do all of these miracles and garner all of this attention, and they're paying attention. And so he grabs Jesus in the middle of the night when it's dark, when as far as we can tell, he's trying to do it in secret. He pulls Jesus to the side and he starts asking him questions about what he's doing. He says, hey, we're watching your actions, we're watching your miracles, and we know you're from God. We just don't know what the deal is. We, do, we don't know why. We, we don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know, you know, and Jesus looked at him and he was like, you of all people should know what to do. You, you, should, you should have seen this coming. There's a, there's a uh, pretty, pretty famous exchange right here where Jesus says, you have to be born again. And uh, the man's name is Nicodemus, and he's like, um, so Jesus, how does that work? I cannot enter once again into my mother's womb. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, 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 you have to be born of the water and of the Spirit. It's, this is where we get the idea of being born again, if you ever heard that phrase in church or, or from Christians, being born again. And Jesus, in this conversation with Nicodemus, gives the reason why he came. And as we read that, I believe we're going to understand how we embrace this season and bring a little more light into the dark. All right, John chapter 3, starting with the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. You'll probably see this on a sign today at a football game somewhere. (laughs) And you will have read it this morning, so you know what it says. All right, John 3.16. But we're going to read past that, okay? Um, Because it doesn't stand on its own. You know that, right? Like verses in the Bible, they're not just, they don't just sit there by themselves. There are no pages in my Bible that have one verse on them, and that is all. (laughs) There's always a before and there's always an after. And so we're going to look at the after. And I'll tell you that I do wish that people who made signs in the back of uh, end zones at football games would put John 3, 16, and 17. I think that would help close the loop for a lot of people. Okay. Um, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
There's a reason that's the most famous verse in the entire Bible, because it pretty much sums up the whole thing. <laughs> does a pretty good job. God loved us so much that he sent his son. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Why? So that no one should have to die for eternity, but have eternal life. For, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus says that the reason that I came, the reason that I am here, is to save. The reason that Jesus came is to forgive. And when you think about the why behind Christmas and not just the what, we need to realize that forgiveness is the purpose of Christmas. Forgiveness is the purpose of Christmas. Yet, what, what is one of the things that we struggle with most at Christmas? Forgiveness. Because we have to be with the person who hurt us. Because we have to spend time with the person who betrayed us. Because we have to sit face to face with the person who we trusted at one point. And broke that trust. Yet, forgiveness is the purpose of Christmas. God did not send his son into the world to be just a great teacher for us. He didn't send his son into the world to just to do great things and to do miracles. The purpose of God sending his son into the world was to forgive us, was to fix the problem and the relationship between us and God. That's why Jesus came, because my sin separates from me from God. And unless, if I pay the penalty for that sin, it means I'm separated from God for eternity. So if someone else doesn't step in and take that penalty for me, I'm doomed. And if someone doesn't step in and take that penalty for you, you're doomed. And so when God sent his son to earth, what he did was he sent a sacrifice for us so that Jesus could pay the penalty so that if we look to Jesus Christ in faith, if we believe in his death on the cross and we believe in his resurrection, then we can be forgiven. Christmas is all about God sacrificing for us so that we could be forgiven. He showed us both grace and mercy. And they're different things, you know. Mercy is withholding punishment that's deserved. Grace is giving favor that's undeserved. And he did both. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, he showed us mercy by not, if we turn to Christ in faith, by not giving us the punishment that we deserve. And at the same time, when we turn to Christ in faith, he gives us what we don't deserve, the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call that the great exchange. We give Christ our sin, and Christ gives us his righteousness. So we accept that, and then we're supposed to go through this process of walking in the light, Right? Walking in the light. John talks about that in his, in his first epistle, First John. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. So we're supposed to walk in the light. So if God, if God put us into the light through his forgiveness, what does it mean for us to walk in the light? It means for us to learn to forgive. And... I believe that forgiving may be the hardest thing that a Christian chooses to do. We don't want to do it, though. Our nature doesn't want us to do it. 
our sinfulness doesn't want us to do it. We want to hold grudges. We want to impose judgments. We want to apply consequences. That's, that, it's in our very nature to do that. And, and we, don't, we don't like forgiveness. We like it for us, right? Not anybody else. Let's look at the next verse. John chapter 3, verse 19 said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, we love darkness. And in fact, what we love most of all is when we can convince ourselves that, light, that darkness is light. When we can try to be justified in what we think and not showing grace and in not showing mercy. Uh, uh, it feels good. So grace and mercy, here's part of the problem. Grace and mercy challenge our natural sense of justice. Our natural sense of justice makes it really hard for us to, to forgive. I'll give you a pretty good example. Um, we've already talked about football a little bit, okay? I'm a, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. That's a football team, arguably. All right? <laughs> and, and something happened in the game last week, something serious, because we played the Patriots. I'm looking at you. That's right. All right. <laughs> I know where the Patriots fans are in the room. All right. So let me, let me, this is not, let me, let me just say, I will disclaimer at the beginning, the actions of one person do not reflect on the entire team. So I'm not going to throw the Patriots, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater on this one. But toward the end of the game last week, Tredavious White, who's a cornerback, that's a football position, for the Buffalo Bills, uh, intercepted a pass by Tom Brady. Okay. And yes, he pushed off. Okay? Yes. He pushed off. He intercepted the ball. He jumped in front of Rob Gronkowski, who's the, who's the great player for the Patriots, and intercepted the ball. And, and Gronk was upset about it. He was upset about some other calls. And because of that, while Tredavious White was on the ground, he jumped down and threw an elbow to the back of his head. Okay? And gave Tredavious White a, a concussion. All right? Um, which I think if you tap someone in the head now in the NFL, you get put in concussion protocol. But anyway, so he hits him. He hits him. It was a cheap shot. It was, it was bad, okay? Um, and I was livid, okay? <laughs> you don't have to give me a reason not to like Rob Gronkowski already, but if you do like, I mean, I'm jumping up and down. I'm mad. I'm like, you got to throw a flag. You got to throw a penalty. This isn't right, you know? And they did throw a flag on him, and I thought, okay, at least that, right? Well, they should have thrown him out of the game, right? But they didn't. They threw a penalty on him. And you know what happened? There were also penalties by a couple other players, including a Bills player, on the play. So what, what happened to his penalty? Got offset. So it never even got imposed. So he didn't get kicked out of the game. His penalty never got imposed. In fact, while all that was happening, Jerry Hughes, a player for the Bills, was walking off the field, and he said something to the ref that the ref didn't like. He was, he was somehow explaining that he did not like the call that the ref had made. And so he said something the ref didn't like. The ref threw a flag on him. And because of the rules of the NFL, our flag on a ref has to be enforced. So not only did Travis White go out of the game, and, and Gronkowski was not actually penalized for the hit, but we got a 15-yard penalty. So we lost our player, lost 15 yards, lost the game, not because of that, but because... Because we're not good. But we still lost all of that. And then what happened? You know what happened? On Tuesday, the league comes out with all of their suspensions, and they, were, they suspended Gronkowski for a game, all right? Which absolutely he should have been, maybe more in my opinion, but that's just my opinion. So suspended him for a game. But guess what? He's suspended this week. Who do the, No, no, they don't have a bye. It's worse. 
It's worse. They play the Dolphins. So, so, you know, so the Bills got no benefit out of the whole thing, right? But, but you know who benefits? The Dolphins benefit, and they're not even going to lose that game. They're going to win without him. So it's like nothing happened. I'm looking at it, and I'm like, there's no justice in the world. If there's justice, then the offending party gets punished, and the offended party gets restored, Right? That's our sense of justice. The offending party must be punished and the offended party must be restored. But what if I told you God doesn't work that way? And what if I told you that he doesn't want us to work that way either? Now, now, true, there should, there should and there usually are consequences for our sin because we need to learn and people need to be protected and to forgive someone doesn't mean removing all consequences from them because you have to stop them from hurting anyone else and sometimes it changes the nature of a relationship but what if i told you that our natural sense of justice that someone must be punished and someone must be restored is it's not actually light like we think it is it's darkness What if I told you that looking for that kind of justice in your life will never, ever, ever give you peace? It will only bring you frustration. What if I told you that 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 sense of justice is built on a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are? Because here's what we do. I want you to just for a moment imagine you're in a courtroom. Imagine you're in a courtroom and the person that hurt you, whoever that is for you, I just want you to think about who that might be in your life, the person that hurt you, that person that offended you, that person that betrayed you, I want you to imagine that they're on trial. They're sitting in the defendant's chair. Where are you? Based on that sense of justice, that natural sense of justice that we have, we would say, I'm in the judge's seat. And by the way, I'm in the jury box. And by the way, I'm the prosecutor as well. I belong in all three of those places. And what if I told you that you don't belong in any one of those places? Not refusing to forgive someone, it has very little actually to do with our relationship with them. It has to do with what chair I sit in when I think about them and when I think about what they did. So what we do is we sit in the, in the prosecutor's seat and we accuse them of their sin. And we sit in the jury box and we pronounce them guilty. And what we do, by the way, we don't sit in the jury box by ourselves either, do we? We try to find some other people to come in and sit with us. So we go to every single person who will listen and we tell them what they do wrong and we try to convince them to pronounce them guilty as well, Right? Because we feel like if we can build a consensus of our peers and we can arrive at a judgment together, then we're not in the dark, we're in the light. Look at what John says in the next verse. John chapter 3, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, we just want a bunch of other people to agree with us because if I can get everyone to agree that they're a jerk, if I can get them to agree that they're wrong, if I can get them to agree that, that they're evil, and, every, and I can get all those people on my side, then I feel good about not forgiving them. And then, of course, we want to sit in the judge's chair so that we can uh, accept the verdict and we can render the punishment. 
And what we naturally do is we try to hurt them back as bad or worse than they hurt us. And so if they disrespected us, what do we do? We find ways to disrespect them and to get other people to disrespect them. If they hurt us, we want to impose the same level of hurt back on them because we want things to be right. We want them to be punished and we want to be restored. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, though, that you're sitting in the courtroom in the defendant's chair. The Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. And I don't think we need the Bible to convince us of that. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we all sit in the defendant's chair. How does God work? Well, he sits on the judge's seat. Not the person we hurt, not, not, not the, the victim of the crime. The victim doesn't sit in any one of those chairs. The victim sits in the gallery, right? God sits on the judge's seat. Holy Spirit's like the bailiff off to the side, all right, calling out names. The prosecutor is our enemy. The prosecutor is Satan, the accuser, as he's called in Scripture. And Jesus Christ sits next to us. And all of us are pronounced guilty of our sin. All of us are, are sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. We're all guilty. And when that judgment comes down, Jesus Christ offers to pay the sentence for us so we can go free. And it's up to us to choose whether we will accept Jesus' gift or not. And if we do accept Jesus' gift, then, then he is taken, right, to punishment, and the bail of the Holy Spirit walks us out to freedom. That's the offer that God gives us through his son, Jesus Christ. And now what I want you to realize, what I need to realize as I think about this person in my life that has hurt me and that has wronged me, is that they sit in the same seat I do, with the same person on the judge's seat, with the same bailiff, with the same prosecutor, and with the same defense attorney. And as I sit in the room, and as I think about that person, I don't think about them from the judge's seat. I know that God will judge them. I don't put myself in the seat of the prosecutor. Satan has, has done that and is doing that. And I have to realize that the person who hurt me has just done the same thing that I've done to others. Maybe on a different scale, but we've all sinned. And they have the same opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ as I did. And to put on the right mind as a follower of Jesus is to have compassion on them instead of judgment for them and to root for them to make the same decision that I made. And so as difficult as that is, when we think about how they've offended us, as a follower of Jesus, the commitment we make is to be like Christ. 
and to put on the mind of Christ and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to learn to think the way that Christ thinks and to act the way that Christ acts and to be able to look at people even in the process of them injuring us and to be able to say the same thing Jesus said when people were in the process of injuring him and he's on the cross being crucified and he's looking at the people who drove nails through his hands and nails through his feet. They had just done that really, and he looks down at them, still holding the hammer in their hands, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And for us to follow Christ is to be able to get to the point in life where we can look at the people who have driven nails through our hands and nails through our feet, who are still holding the hammer, who haven't asked forgiveness, who haven't turned around, who don't care, and be able to look at them and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The next verse, verse 21, says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I believe that forgiving may be the hardest thing that a Christian chooses to do, but I also believe that forgiving may be the greatest testimony that a Christian can possess. That if we can get to the point where we learn to look at the people in our life who've hurt us, the same way that Jesus learned or that Jesus knew to look at people who had hurt him. The same way that our Heavenly Father looks at those of us that have turned our back on him. That's when we truly begin walking in the light. And I don't think there's ever a time in our life, or maybe at least regularly, where we see the need for this so much as at Christmas. When we spend time with the people that we're closest to, that we let get the closest to us, and in many cases that have hurt us. And so if you truly want to experience light this Christmas instead of darkness, if you truly want to walk in the light, and if you truly want to celebrate the spirit of Christmas and the purpose of Christmas, there is no better way to do that than to forgive. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to pray and just be thinking, maybe this is a moment where your attitude towards someone shifts. The way you look at them begins to shift. I have, I have people in my family. I've, I've, I want to talk about this specifically for just a moment. But I have people in my family that, that were abused phys physically, sexually, mentally, emotionally, all of it. And all of them that are in my family that I know of that have been abused have been able to forgive the person that did it. And I'm, I'm, bringing, I'm using that as an example because I think it's probably the most extreme of the examples. And a lot of you deal with it. And to a person, when I ask them, how did you do it? The answer is always the same. I learned to look at them through God's eyes instead of mine. I learned to pity them. I learned to have compassion. I learned in some way to relate to them. And in doing so, I realized that they needed forgiveness the same way that I need forgiveness. 
And if I truly understand the forgiveness God has given to me, then I will give it to them, whether they deserve it or not. That's the point. Okay? So I want to pray, and I want you to think about whoever that person may be in your life. And maybe this is a moment where your, your perspective on them starts to shift and you begin to see them the way that God sees them. Okay? Let's pray. Got to come to you um, and recognize, first of all, that we've all sinned, all of us. Every single person in this room, there's nobody that's escaped that. There's nobody that's an exception or a special case. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory, and we all deserve what we deserve is to be separated from you for eternity. We deserve that. That's, there's nothing unjust about that. There's nothing wrong about that. There's, if, if you did that, if you chose to separate all of us from you for all of eternity, that would be perfectly fine and perfectly just. But you have a mindset of mercy, and you have a mindset of grace. And so, in your loving kindness, you sent your son to earth, what we celebrate at Christmas, a little baby in a manger through incredible circumstances which fulfilled prophecy for for thousands of years. You brought your son to earth. And he grew, and he learned, and he, he was baptized, and he served, and he taught. And at the end of his life on earth, he gave himself as a sacrifice for us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He gave his life for us as a sacrifice, Jesus Christ, so that we could be forgiven. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never accepted that, they can simply turn to it in faith today and say, God, I know I failed you. If this is you today, and in the room you could pray and you could just say, God, I know I've failed you, but I believe in Jesus. And I believe that he died for me. God, we believe that Jesus showed power over sin and death, conquered sin and death by going to the grave and rising on the third day. And that he then ascended and, and went to be with you. And that's where he sits now. And God, you sent us, if we turn to you in faith, you sent us the Holy Spirit to help us walk in the light. And one of the things, Spirit, that we, we need you to do is we need you to break the pride that keeps us from forgiving. To break the self-centeredness that takes the sin of someone else and elevates it above our own. That that you would fill us with the eyes of God, that you would fill us with compassion, that you would fill us with love, that you would allow us to act in grace and to act in mercy so that we can walk through life in the light instead of the dark, that we can embrace your, your sense of justice, God, the way that the world works, and that we can look at the people, even who have hurt us, and the people who are hurting us now, and we can see them with your eyes full of compassion and love, praying and cheering for them that they will make the decision to accept you and to follow you and walk in the light. Help us to forgive. Help us to have mercy and to give grace the way you've done for us. And this Christmas season, for each person, as they're thinking about that person, that, that person that hurt them, the person that wronged them, the person that betrayed them, I pray, God, that you would help them to love them back. And not to return evil for evil, but to return mercy and grace. I pray that you just do that work in our heart right now. We are so sinful and we are so prideful and it is so difficult for us to shake, but through the power of your Spirit within us, 
we can live as your child and walk in the light. It's in your name we pray. Amen.